Okay, let's take a moment and generate our motivation. Begin by getting a sense of how we ourselves are stuck in cyclic existence. How we're overpowered by attachment, aversion, ignorance. How as much as we want happiness, we wind up with confusion and pain, despair. And so we're seeking a way out of this situation through transforming our own minds and to transform our own minds we need to learn how to do that how to identify the disturbing emotions that trap us and how to counteract them when we do so we start with learning, investigating our own mind, calming our own mind. But at some point we have to really open our hearts to all other living beings and realize that they exist in the same confused situation we do. And so simply to focus on our own misery and ignore theirs isn't right. It doesn't feel right inside. It doesn't feel fair. And so we open our hearts in compassion to other living beings. Not because we pity them or feel sorry for them but because they're exactly like us and wanting happiness and not wanting suffering and because they've been kind to us. And so to fulfill our aspiration to really bring about their welfare, then we have to improve ourselves, particularly attaining full awakening enlightened state of a Buddha and so we set our long term aim on that and use that motivation to infuse even the small actions we do day by day to make them really meaningful and to make them become the cause of our full awakening So generate that motivation and think that our studying the four establishments of mindfulness this evening is fulfilling that motivation.
when I first went to Kapan in 1975, um, I just I never thought of coming back to the West. I was going to stay in Nepal and get enlightened. <laughs> and uh, there was another monk there, one from Holland, and he. I think had a similar intention. He was just going to go to retreat and get enlightened. And Lama took him out of retreat and had him uh, work and develop a business for the Sangha. <laughs> because that's, uh, I think, the most skillful thing that, that he needed at that particular time. And similarly... Uh, you know, I got given, assigned to various tasks and and things, because uh, that was all the way of training and transforming my own mind. So sometimes we come into the Dharma with all of our uh, well-meaning, you know, and deeply inspired, but very fanciful way of thinking. Yeah. I was sure I would just stay there and get enlightened. You know? <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it's really important to, to learn and to study with the masters and the people who, have, uh, who are further along the path than we are to learn what to practice and what to avoid. Because we come in with all of our ideas. <laughs> I was so arrogant. Um, Lama used to have this thing of having people do Sangha exams. So they had to get up, and Lama and Rinpoche were both there, and they had to give a talk. To, to the Sangha and the lay people and then answer questions. So uh, I was just a baby beginner. I saw some of the people who were older than me doing the Sangha exams. And I thought, oh, when I do the Sangha exam sometime in the future, I'm going to do it on emptiness. Because I understand. The ultimate nature of reality, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm going to dazzle them with my clarity on the topic. So fortunately, I never got to do a, <laughs> a song exam. Otherwise, I would have just filled people with all my wrong ideas. Yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, that's kind of the way I started out. Yeah. So uh, I think I was quite fortunate in that I met really good masters and, uh, and uh, stuck with it over a period of time. Yeah. Because the, the way they trained us, it wasn't so easy. Yeah. I was drinking tea one afternoon and this nun walked by and said, Oh, Lama thinks it would be very good if you go to India. No, to Italy. And then she kept walking. (laughs) Italy? I won't go to Italy. I'm staying in Nepal to get enlightened. 
<laughs> so I thought, yeah. So um, you know, there was there was really a, a process there of of uh, opening up and letting my teachers train me. And like I said, it was often um, through doing the opposite of what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, actually, quite often. <laughs> you know, I went to Italy, and some of you have heard about my Italian experiences, and uh, came back, and okay, I'm done with that. And then they asked me to go to Italy again. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have a heart attack, but I thought might. <laughs> yeah. And as it wound, and you know, as it wound up, I never went. But for a long time, I thought I was going again, and so I had to really work with my mind to uh, to work with that situation. But all of these ways are ways that our teachers train us. You know and help us confront uh, these ingrained patterns and habitual emotions and things like that that we cling on to so much. Because we we have all of our ideas about the way things should be, don't we? And just as we have all all of our ideas about the way, you know, people in our ordinary life should be when we come into the Dharma we have all of our ideas about the way the Dharma people should be too you know and how our training should be and how this should be and that should be and the other things should be and uh, and it really causes us a lot of internal um, distress <laughs> and uneasiness when reality just does not conform with our expectations. Yeah? And I think this is one of our big problems, is we have so many expectations that we don't realize our expectations. And then reality doesn't conform with them and we get upset. Yeah? So I think a lot of it is you know, letting go of the unrealistic expectations that we have. And at the same time, seeing our incredible potential to do things that we never thought we could do. So it sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Letting go of unrealistic expectations, but seeing the potential to do things that we never imagined we could be able to do. But actually, uh, I think we have to do both. Hmm? And we usually fight doing both. We hang on to our unrealistic expectations. And when, when our teacher, you know, tries to help us gain the ability to do something that we think we can't do, we fight them. I can't do that. Oh, stop pushing me. I can't do that. But then we have these unrealistic expectations of who knows what about how other people should be and how we should be and blah, blah. Yeah. So there's a lot of confusion. So a lot of our practice is just seeing this confusion and beginning to sort it out and 
you know, let different things go and begin to see things with a little bit more clarity. And while we're doing this, having a lot of kindness towards ourselves. Yeah? Without uh, pushing ourselves and demanding things of ourselves and being disappointed with ourselves, but just, you know, being kind of kind to ourselves, which is very new for many of us. We don't know how to be kind to ourselves. We know how to beat up on ourselves. But beating up on ourselves doesn't do very much good. Yeah, It's basically a huge waste of time. <laughs> Even though we think it's really important to do, it's actually a big waste of time. So, one of the, you know, right now we're going through these chapters, uh, uh, chapter 9 in Shantideva, the part focusing on the, for seeing the selflessness of phenomena by the four establishments of mindfulness. And the purpose of this is to eliminate the ignorance grasping at a self of phenomena that will help us eliminate the ignorance grasping at the self of person. And doing that will, is the ultimate antidote for getting rid of the unrealistic expectations and the, uh, the self-denigration and the way we limit the development of our own potential. So that's why we're investigating this topic. So even though it isn't necessarily easy to understand, it's quite worthwhile. And so we study it, we plant seeds in our mind, and slowly some understanding comes. And then you can do your Sangha exam on emptiness. just had, you know, this fantasy. I was just going to get up there, give this discourse, dazzle them. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we are on um, verse 87 from chapter 9 of Shantideva. And uh, we have been talking about the establishment of mindfulness uh, on the body and, you know, seeing how what we call the body is basically just a name that is imputed on the collection of different parts. And none of those parts are the body. And when we look at the, the parts themselves, the hands, the legs, and so on, those things are merely imputed. They're mere names given to a collection of parts, which are their base and so on, on down, and we never find a smallest particle. Mm-hmm. And we never find something that exists there without being labeled by the mind, you know, objectively. So, verse 87 <laughs> says, Who with discernment would be attached to a body that is like a dream? Since a body does not, in parentheses, truly exist, then what is a male and what is a female? Okay, so we talked about uh, the first two lines, who with discernment would be attached to a body that is like a dream. Because when we dream, we 
uh, think that everything in the dream is real, when we awake from the dream, we realize that there was nothing really there. It was just an appearance. Yeah. So there was no dream elephant, no dream horse. Yeah. But there was the appearance. Yeah. I'm sorry. There was not a real uh, horse. There was not a real elephant. But there was the appearance of a horse and an elephant and whatever else we dream about. Okay, so in a similar way, our body appears to be real. There appears to be a truly existent body, something that has its own entity that isn't just a name imputed on parts. Uh, And yet that body that seems so real is actually like the dream. You know, there's nothing real there. It's just an appearance. And it's a mistaken appearance because it appears to to have its own essence, to exist from its own side, when in actual fact it doesn't. So every cognizer of a sentient being, except for an Arya's meditative equipoise on emptiness, is mistaken. Okay, sit with that. Okay. I don't know about you, but I'm not an Arya. Yeah. And I'm definitely not a meditative equipoise on emptiness, which means every cognition I have is mistaken because it, to it appears true existence, but true existence doesn't exist. Okay. doesn't mean those cognizers are erroneous. I can still identify objects. But the way, you know, I know this is a cup and this is a thing of tissues and so on. But the way these things appear is mistaken. Okay. So that's rather shocking when you sit with it for a while. And think everything I look at with my eyes, I am not seeing it as it really exists, as it really is. What I'm seeing is false. So this this can be very helpful to think when our mind is upset about something, you know, because when we're upset, we're usually reacting to something in the environment or some internal thought or something. And to say, what is appearing to my mind is false. So... Maybe I don't need to be quite so upset. Yeah? What's appearing to my mind is just an appearance. It's not something real that I need to buy into and take so seriously. So it can be quite quite helpful for our mind. Yeah? We're not saying things are non-existent, but we're saying it's just an appearance to my mind. Okay? So... If there's no truly existent body, then what is a male and what is a female? Now, you know, the whole thing of male and female is a hot topic in society, bigger topic than it was at the time of the Buddha, you know, because, you know, there's been the suffragettes and, you know, feminism and so on. But if you look, how do we discriminate male and female? It's just on the basis of the arrangement of atoms and molecules. 
That's all. And yet, based on this arrangement, this is one of the first identities we get when we're born. What's the first question we ask, you know, parents who have just had a baby? Yeah. Is it a boy or a girl? That's the first way we're, we're differentiated. You don't ask, is it bald or does it have hair? Because you already know. Yeah. And you don't ask, does it cry or does it not cry? Because you know. Yeah. And if, the mother, if you know the mother and father, you don't ask what race it is because you know. So, the, you know, is it a boy or is it a girl? Oh, we don't know that. And so that's one of the first ways we're labeled. And then, of course, we're brought up and we're acculturated um, in a certain way due to this labeling and all the connotations we have about what is a male, what is a female, what is feminine, what is masculine. And yet the difference is basically just on the shape of some atoms and molecules. Yeah. And when you think about it, to have so much difference in sentient beings and so much prejudice against half of the sentient beings and so on, based on simply an arrangement of the atoms and molecules, is really rather sad and pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, yet you really see people clinging on to this. No. And if, oh, women think differently than men. Well, sometimes yes, but sometimes no. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, making, making quite a, a, a big deal about all of this. But what really is male and what really is female? When you think about it. It, it drives me mildly crazy when, <laughs> yeah, only mildly, um, when people get, you know, start um, uh, really saying, you know, well, men think like this and women think like this. And, you know, okay, sometimes there's some certain ways of thinking, yeah. But to make it hard and fast, yeah. Or we need to bring more of the feminine in. What does that mean? Or we need to bring more of the masculine in. What does that mean? People talk about it a lot. And they seem to really think they understand it and believe in it. But I've always wondered. Yeah? What does that really mean? So, anyway, think about it. <laughs> okay, so that's um, what Shantideva talks about, about the uh, establishment of mindfulness of the body. It's interesting that he ends on the whole thing of male and female. Yeah? Because that's, that actually is a big thing in Buddhism. And, you know, the a lot of the attitude towards women that, you know, we, we don't think is so fair. And he's kind of questioning this right here. Okay. 
So now we move on to the selflessness of phenomena in relationship to the establishment of the mindfulness of feelings. So remember here, feelings, the way we're using the word feelings, does not mean emotions. You know, here the word feelings has a very particular Buddhist meaning, not our general American meaning or general English meaning. So here it means just the raw feelings of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, or we could say happy, uh, painful and neutral. You know, just those basic three feelings, which can either be feelings uh, that are brought about through our body or feelings that are brought about just in our mind. But the, the feeling itself is a mental state. Okay? Yeah. It's very interesting to sit, to sit there sometime, like when you have physical pain, because we feel, you know, oh, my body hurts. But the body itself doesn't hurt, because if there weren't a mind in relationship to the body, the body wouldn't hurt. The actual feeling is experienced in the mind. And yet, when we have that feeling, it seems to be the body that's hurting. The feeling itself is a mental experience. That's quite interesting to sit with sometimes. Yeah? And just try and grok that one. (laughs) Okay. So our feelings are very important to us all day long from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep and even in our dreams we are trying to have pleasant happy feelings and avoid painful suffering feelings and that's what we do from morning till night it's what every sentient being is doing that's what motivates everything we do is that we're just trying to be happy and not have suffering bottom line motivation for everything sentient beings do. And so this attachment we have to our feelings is um, a prime motivator for a lot of our actions because we're very attached to the pleasant feelings. We have a lot of aversion towards negative physical and mental feelings. And then flat out boredom or confusion about neutral feelings. And so... When we have a pleasant feeling, we crave for it to continue. When we have an unpleasant feeling, we crave for it to end. You know, we're always fighting with the world, trying to arrange the external environment so that we're surrounded by what we think is going to bring us pleasant feelings and so that we get as far away from as we can, everything that we think will bring us unpleasant feelings. And that's basically what we do all day long. Yeah? When we sit and look at our mind, it's basically what I do. Yeah? All day long. And uh, so the feelings bring up so much craving. Craving to have more of the pleasant, be free of the negative. Yeah? to, uh, you know, even have a neutral feeling if we're in pain or not to be free of the neutral feeling that's in the, you know, when you have the jhanic uh, meditative stabilizations. 
And so that craving, you know, instigates so many of the actions we do. That's our karma. You know, karma is the actions. And when that craving is strong, you know, manifesting as attachment or anger or whatever, uh, we forget about how our actions influence the people around us because we're just focused on I want happiness and I don't want pain. And we're not thinking that other people want happiness and don't want pain. So we do whatever we can to be happy and not have pain and never think of how what we do is going to influence other people. And so as a result, we create a lot of disturbance in other people's lives. And then they let us know about it. And then we get upset and confused. And why is everybody scolding me and treating me like that? But sometimes it's because we're just spaced out and unaware of how what we do influences other people. And how what we do influences our own future. You know, because we're creating karma. Okay? So, it's very good for us to actually stop and ask ourselves, what is the actual mode of existence of these feelings? You know, my feelings are so important to me in my life. Everything in my life is structured around them. What are these feelings? How do they actually exist? Okay? Because if feelings were inherently existent, then being attached to them, being angry, you know, unpleasant feelings and so on, would be justified. But if feelings are just something that exists by being merely labeled, if they don't exist under their own power, then having so so much strong emotional reaction to them doesn't make much sense. It's like, you know, if there's a thief in your house, it makes sense to react. But if there's a thief on the TV, you don't need to, you know, get all worried. So it's the same way. If feelings are, have an inherent nature, okay, justified to do something, you know. But if they don't, if they're just an appearance to the mind, if they're just caused phenomena which are impermanent and are going to disappear in the next moment, then getting so whacked out by them and letting them control our life or letting the attachment and aversion to them control our life doesn't make much sense. Okay? So in uh, Nagarjuna's text, The Praise to the World Transcendent, he inquires into the nature of our mental world of experience. And so uh, this is a verse from Nagarjuna, not from Shantideva. But he says, Since without the felt there is no feeling, feeling itself is devoid of self. So you uphold that what is felt too is devoid of inherent existence. So what he's talking about here is that feeling is a very complex process that involves something that is doing the feeling, an agent, okay, 
the object, you know, which is felt, and the action of feeling. So this, this kind of analysis into agent, object, and action is a very standard one that Nagarjuna does all through um, fundamental wisdom, you know. Uh, and so it's a very standard argument, to, you know, because we feel like the agent, the object, and the action all have their own identities within themselves, but actually they only arise in dependence upon each other. So when we're examining feeling, okay, the agent could be the person or it could be the whole mental state. Yeah? And then the object is the feeling itself, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the action is the action of experiencing this feeling. Okay? So we don't have a feeler without a feeling and an action of experiencing. And we don't have a feeling without somebody who's feeling it and the action of it of it being felt. And we don't have the action without a feeler and a felt. <laughs> okay? So all these things actually come into existence independence upon each other. They're not independent entities. Because sometimes we think of it as, well, how do we think of it? Sometimes, you know, it, it varies. But sometimes we feel like, okay, first there's the feeler, okay, me, or my mental state. First that exists. Then there's uh, a feeling, a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling out there. And then there's the action of feeling it, which connects that pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling with me or my mental state. That's the way we think of it, isn't it? Does it exist that way? Yeah? Is there a feeler before there's a felt and an action? No. Yeah? Is there a feeling before there's some there's somebody feeling it or a mental state experiencing it and an action of doing that? No. Yeah. All these things are existing dependent on each other. And yet we see them as kind of, you know, one, two, three, yeah, isolated things, and then somehow they get glued together. <laughs> but not like that. Okay? So all these things are mutually defined. Yeah? Defined independence upon each other. Not independent of each other. Okay? So, you know, really thinking about that is a very interesting way to approach feelings. Because, you know, the, the feeling we have seems so incredibly real. Yeah. And yet, it couldn't be there without the feeler and the action of feeling. It isn't as if there's a, a pleasant feeling kind of sitting there, out there, waiting for us to feel it. Or an unpleasant feeling sitting there, out there, waiting for us to come along and feel it. 
Okay, so Aryas who have the direct realization of emptiness uh, don't grasp at truly existent feelings. They see that feelings are dependent arising. They don't grasp at them as truly existent. So as a result, they no longer have uh, painful mental feelings because they don't grasp at them as being truly existent painful mental feelings. Okay? And um, bodhisattvas, due to their merit, they don't have painful physical feelings, although the hearer and solitary realizer, arhats, aryas, may have painful physical and mental feelings because they don't have the same accumulation of merit that the bodhisattvas do. Yeah. Arya bodhisattvas, in particular. Ordinary bodhisattvas experience painful feelings. But they're training themselves to see them as empty of true existence. And so that in itself removes a lot of the stress about the feelings and a lot of the fear of the feelings. Because yeah. we see that so often, we, I mean, we get terrified because we're afraid of experiencing pain in the future. We're not experiencing pain now, but because we're grasping the pain as truly existent, we get very afraid of experiencing it in the future. And that causes mental pain, which we then grasp as truly existent. Mm -hmm. And we get quite tangled up. So seeing, seeing that feelings are just caused phenomena, they only arise because the causes of them are there. And when the causes cease, they cease. Then that can give us a lot of space in our mind, you know, so that when there's a, an unpleasant feeling, we don't have this instant knee-jerk reaction of, I've got to stop it immediately, I can't stand this any longer. You know how we get when we, there's an, un, you know, even some small unpleasant feeling. It's like, ah, I can't stand it. Okay. Okay, let's see what Shanti Deva says here. So here there's going to be a little bit of a debate between the Madhyamakas and the, the uh, non-Madhyamakas. So the first verse is the Madhyamakas spe- uh, speaking. So they say, you know, that's our team. Yeah. So they're the right ones. Right? Right? So if suffering truly exists, why does it not destroy our experience of extreme joy? And if happiness existed truly, why don't those tormented by grief enjoy such things as delicious tastes? Okay? So, if feelings were truly existent, that would mean that they didn't they wouldn't depend on causes and conditions. Because remember, truly existent means something that is exists without being related to any other thing. So it doesn't depend on causes and conditions, doesn't depend on parts, doesn't depend on concept and labeling. So that means that happiness would be happiness without it being produced by causes. Yeah. And suffering would be suffering without it being produced by causes. 
Yeah. And if that were so, then suffering would never cease and happiness would never cease because neither of them would be influenced by causes. Okay. So when he says if suffering truly exists, why doesn't it destroy our experience of extreme joy? That is because, you know, the suffering would be permanent, unchanging, because it's truly existent. And so it would, it should overpower any feeling of joy we ever have because the, the suffering would be constant. In the same way, you know, if happiness truly existed, then it would continuously exist without depending on causes and conditions. In which case, people who were tormented by grief should actually experience happiness. Because there would be no cause for the happiness to decline because it would be independent of causes and conditions. But that's not what we see, is it? You know, when we have extreme joy, if suffering arises due to causes, that can overpower the joy. Yeah. And if we have happiness, it can be destroyed by, you know, or, or put it this way, um, uh, if, if we're, we have very strong grief, that can't be overcome by a small experience of happiness where the causes and conditions aren't strong enough to make it that happiness strong. And the causes and conditions for the suffering are very strong. Okay? So the happiness should arise without a cause if it were truly existent. And therefore, grief wouldn't be able to impede the happiness. Yeah, because the happiness wouldn't depend on conditions. And yet, grief does impede happiness. Yeah. And, you know, happiness can sometimes overcome the misery that we have too if the causes for the happiness are stronger. Okay, so now we're going to have a uh, debate between the Madhyamakas and the lower school. So the Madhyamakas say for some, if something's truly existent, it has to be permanent and unchanging because it doesn't depend on causes and conditions. Okay, and if that were the case, a suffering feeling would never cease and that would override any experience of joy. And conversely, if happiness existed truly, it would always be produced. Um, you know, it would always be present and could never be overcome. Okay. Now, the um, but but actually, in our life, what we see is that feelings arise and cease. We're happy one moment, we're unhappy the next. But if feelings were truly existent, this fluctuation of happiness, unhappiness, and neutral would not occur because none of those feelings would depend on causes and conditions. So if something doesn't depend on causes and conditions, that means either that it would always be there, yeah, because some change in cause and conditions wouldn't affect it, or it would never be there because, again, different causes and conditions coming into being couldn't make it happen. And yet our very experience is that we have all these different feelings, but none of them last. They arise and cease, arise and cease. So our experience 
contradicts the way things would have to be if they were truly existent. Okay? Now, the non-madhyamakas object and they say, it is not experienced because it is overridden by something more intense. Okay, so the happiness isn't uh, experienced because it's overridden by something more intense, okay, which is the suffering. And the Madhyamakas say, how can it be a feeling if it lacks the nature of experience? Okay, so the, the Nadmanyamakas are saying that in the case of a grief-stricken person, the pleasure from eating delicious food is present, but it isn't experienced because the feeling of suffering is more intense. And the Madhyamakas reply that the definition of feeling is that which is experienced. So how can you say the pleasure is there, but it's not being experienced? Because how can you have a feeling if it's not being experienced? Okay? So if something isn't experienced, it can't be a feeling. And since the pleasure from eating food is not experienced during the times of intense pain, it can't be a feeling. Okay? Then non-Vanyamakas object again, saying subtle suffering persists. Latent happiness exists only, uh, eliminates only coarse suffering. And this subtle suffering is another form of subtle happiness. And the Madhyamakas reply, when subtle, it, sh- it should still be that suffering. Okay. So in other words, the Madhyamakas are saying when you experience intense pleasure, the pain stops because the two things are opposite. Okay. The opponent replies that when you have the, the strong feeling of happiness, overrides only the gross experience of pain. But there's still a subtle feeling of pain that's present at the same time that the happiness is there. And they go a step further saying that the subtle pain is actually a subtle feeling of pleasure, which is different from the coarse feeling of pleasure. Okay. It doesn't make much sense, does it? That's why we're refuting it. So, for example, it's the, they say it's the pleasurable feeling of relief that arises when intense pain stops. And Madhyamakas find this answer contradictory because uh, if something is pleasurable, be it coarse or subtle, and, and pleasure is being experienced, pain is not present at that time. So you can't say that, you know, pain is a subtle form of happiness. So a single feeling can't be both pain and pleasure. Now it's interesting because when we talk about the second kind of dukkha, the dukkha of change, we say that when when you're tired of standing up and when you sit down, that sitting down, we say that's pleasurable. But actually what it is, is the suffering of the pain of sitting down is small at that time mm-hmm. yeah and the the pain of the pain of standing up has ceased and the pain of sitting down is small okay so then you go wait, wait a minute that that's an example of that's that's pain and it's pleasure isn't it no okay cuz what we're getting at is 
what we call pleasure in that situation is actually a small degree of pain. We're not saying it is pain. Or the, 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 yeah, we're not saying it is pleasure. Okay. Yeah? So is there actually such thing as pleasure within, within cyclic existence? Um, within the desire realm, I think it, you, it would be very difficult to find uh, some experience of pleasure that lasts, that isn't going to decrease. Because what we call pleasure is a state of a small degree of, of suffering. Okay? And that's why the, what we call pleasure in the desire realm doesn't last, why it changes. Yeah? It's why if you, you know, when you eat, it feels good at the beginning, but if you keep doing it, you get a stomachache. Yeah? So it's, it's the whole idea that, you know, pleasure doesn't inherit in an object, because if it did, the more we had contact with that object, the more pleasure we would experience, but that's not what's happened. Well, couldn't we say the same thing about pain as well? The pain doesn't necessarily exist through an object, or rather the experience of the perception mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, similarly, the, you know, we're not saying the pain inheres in the object either. Yeah, because, I mean, how do we differentiate pleasure and pain? It's just in relation to each other. So what we call pain for being in the hell realms would be called pleasure. Yeah? What we call hunger for somebody who's starving would be called feeling, you know, full. Yeah? So these, these things are, are, are labeled in relationship to each other. And they don't, the feelings of pain and pleasure don't exist in the object. Because if they did, every time we experience that object, we should experience the same thing. And everybody should experience the same thing. Yeah. So if chocolate cake had real pleasure in it, the more I ate, the happier I would feel. And everybody would feel pleasure when eating chocolate cake. Yeah. And, and it wouldn't depend on what else was going on in your life, you would experience pleasure eating the chocolate cake because the pleasure was inside the chocolate cake. But that's not our experience, is it? Yeah. Everything we take, attempting to feel pleasure from, can often cause us to experience pain. Yeah, We've had that many times, haven't we? doing many things, thinking it's going to bring, bring us pleasure, but because there's other conditions present, we experience pain instead. Okay? So it is showing that these things are caused phenomena. They don't exist under their own power. Yeah, they're dependent on other things. Okay. So then, so then the Madhyamakas continue. But with the arising of discordant conditions, there's no arising of suffering, meaning discordant conditions are 
are conditions that don't produce suffering. Okay, concordant conditions. You know, things are produced by concordant conditions. But if you have discordant conditions, then there's not going to be the arising of suffering. Okay. Thus, isn't feeling something merely imputed by thought? Yeah. So if if suffering doesn't arise when there's the causes for happiness, and if happiness doesn't arise when there's causes of suffering, then neither of them exist under their own power. If they don't exist under their own power, they're dependent on other things. And one of the things they're dependent on is being imputed by thought. Okay. So the causes for pleasure are not concordant with pain. When the causes for pleasure are present, pain can't arise. And so thinking that pain is felt when the causes of pleasure are present is a distorted conception. Yeah. And what is a cause of suffering for one person may be the cause of happiness for another. For example, some people... Uh, experience pleasure when eating momos and other people don't. Some people like butter tea. (sighs) I can't understand those people. And other people don't like butter tea. Okay, so the feelings don't exist in the object. They're imputed by our thought. And they're dependent on, on causes and conditions. You know, I can't stand butter tea, but if I were really thirsty, butter tea would be great. Yeah? We can see this. Yeah. Okay, so to summarize, if a feeling truly existed, existed independent of other factors, there would be no other factor which could interfere with it arising and ceasing. It would always be there. Okay, so once we felt the feeling, we would always feel it because nothing could interfere with it. And even if something, another condition arose, that condition wouldn't have any power to affect the feeling we were feeling because that feeling truly exists and doesn't depend on other conditions. But that's not how things are. Okay? So... Um, it's quite interesting to, to think about this, you know, especially when we get very attached to certain feelings and to think, you know, in a different situation, yeah, what I'm experiencing would be, per- I would perceive it in a very different way. Yeah. You may be, um, I mean, if you think of being in a traffic jam. It's like, oh, I hate traffic jams. But if you were in a war zone and suddenly you were transported to a traffic jam, that traffic jam would be very pleasant, wouldn't it? Yeah? So it, it's very helpful to, to see that. You know, next time we're in a traffic jam, instead of going, this is so terrible, I can't stand it, you know, think of, well, actually, I would call this pleasant if I were coming into it from being in a, you know, in a war zone. Hmm? Okay. So when you're in the meditation hall and your mind's going crazy and you're going nuts and you're saying, I can't do that. You know, and you're planning, you're, you're, you know, running down the hill. Then stop and think, well, if I, you know, if I got transported to this from a war zone, 
Wouldn't this be absolutely the most delightful, safe place I could ever be? You know? And then you realize, oh, okay, my, the state of my mind isn't something truly exists and I don't need to be so reactive to it. Actually, the Buddha did that with his um, cousin. He had a cousin who was so attached to women and, you know, got into thinking, oh, they're so beautiful, I want to be with them. Oh. And the Buddha, through his, his magical powers, took his cousin Nanda to the God realm where there were even more beautiful women and more pleasure. And then that helped his cousin renounce the desire of, you know, and the, the pleasure of the desire realm. Yeah. So, just by, you know, seeing, oh, these guys, you know, these ones look kind of like old hags compared to the ones in the God realm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Buddha used whatever skillful means he can use. And that's what... You know, he had to do with his cousin to get him interested in creating virtue. Okay? Then the... Uh, oh, we have to stop now. Okay. There's a time for, you know, maybe one or two questions if you have them. I have a thought. I think there's a question. Maybe this... Just checking on this. Just trying to imagine... To really think that you spend your whole life and multiple lives trusting your senses. So to stop trusting one's senses, mm-hmm. you have to have faith in something. Yeah. You know, and is, is that why we talk about faith being the really base and foundation of path? Because mm-hmm. you have to, I mean, you have to trust where you're going or you don't go. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that you know, up until now we've trusted our senses, and we have to start questioning our senses. So don't we have to have faith in something else, like the Buddha Dharma Sangha, in order to give up that that faith in our senses? And is that kind of faith like a, a root, you know, an important part of the path? Okay, we have to understand clearly what faith means here. Okay. And, yes, you know, having faith or confidence or trust in the Buddha Dharma Sangha is really, really important. But it's not just, well, Buddha said, don't trust your senses, so I have faith in the Buddha. Because that's not going to really help you when you get in a difficult situation. So the kind of faith we want to develop is through thinking about these teachings. And if we think about these teachings and we begin to apply them to our experience, then we begin to see, oh, my senses are not so reliable. So then the thing of not trusting our senses isn't like jumping off the diving board into the deep end where you have no idea of where you're going. It isn't that kind of blind faith. It's like, I can see that my senses are deceptive. You know, when it's explained to me in this kind of way, I can see that the way I think of my experiences and the way I interpret my sense, my sensual experiences, that it, it's not so accurate. Yeah? And so through that wisdom that sees the truth 
in the Buddha's explanation, then you get faith in the Buddha. Okay? And so, then at those times, when your mind is back into grasping what my senses are saying is true, then you remember, oh, but I thought about it one time and I realized it wasn't true. And even though it's very hard for me to recall that experience right now, I remember that and I remember that I trusted the Buddha at that time because I saw that what the Buddha said described my experience. It was true. Yeah, And so that will help you get through those difficult things. And then as you listen to more teachings and, and apply those teachings to your experience and see how they're true, then you get more confidence in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Okay? So it's not just some kind of blind belief. Yeah? Because blind belief is not going to cut it, you know, either when we have difficulties or when somebody presents another argument. Okay? But the development of this faith that comes through contemplating the teachings and having conviction of them, that kind of faith is much more stable. Okay? So that's what we really want to aim at developing. Okay? Now, of course, at the beginning, we may have the kind of faith that um, admires the Buddha's qualities just because we hear about them. We may not understand them very well, but we admire those qualities and that kind of faith uplifts our mind. But the more we can understand how the Buddha can actually have those qualities, the more we, the, we go from having admire, admiring faith to having faith based on conviction. Okay? Yeah. And just, too, then seeing again more, even more clearly how the graduated path is so brilliant at building... Um, conviction based on experience for things that you can grab more right. readily. Yeah. yeah, and how yeah that the how the law rim the the system is systematization <laughs> of the law rim is is brilliant because it starts kind of where we are and then leads us to examining more and more stages of our experience. Mm-hmm. Someone was asking me a question online that says regarding gender, are deities represented as male or female so that we can identify with them, or do we place that on them with our own minds? Mm. So, uh, are deities, like um, the tantric deities, uh, do they appear in male and female forms um, so that we can identify them with them, or, or what's, or... Or do we place that on them with our own minds? Or do we place that, maybe project that onto them with our own minds. I think that the Buddha appears in those forms as a skillful means uh, for us. But it's not just so that we can identify. If you're female, identifying with Tara. If you're a male, identifying with you know, Manjushri. It's not just that. Because when you do the self-generation practice, women will self-generate as Manjushri and men will self-generate as Tara. So it actually helps us get beyond a lot of our very rigid ideas about what sex we are. Yeah. And there, you know, it, the, in tantric um, 
iconography, word. Um, the male often represents the medicine side of the path or compassion, and the women the wisdom side of the path, uh, you know, the, the exalted wisdom. So that's symbolic of things. And so that's why when you see them in union, you're, you're trying to think of the union of compassion and, and wisdom, the union of method and wisdom. Good. Until next week. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all outer Hindrances, grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual masters be stable and their divine actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lohsam's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Due to this merit, may we soon Attain the enlightened state of Guru-Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline but increase forevermore in the snowy mountain pure land. You're the source of good and happiness, powerful tending gods of generosity. May you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West Flourish.